Uh, I wanna, I'm continuing this series, Things Jesus Never Said. And uh, several people have said that I've been stepping on their toes, and I'm not trying to do that. I'm just, uh, just these are things that I feel like that our culture uh, attributes to Jesus sometimes that aren't true. Uh, and this is one of those things. Jesus never said, don't offend anyone with the truth. We're, we're living in an age where we talk about tolerance a lot. And, uh, and we're, the only thing we're intolerant of is intolerance. Uh, in other words, you have to be tolerant of everybody and every view. Every view has to have the same value. Everyone's truth is their truth. And so you have to just agree with their truth, even if you believe their truth is not true. So you have to tolerate it. And uh, the true view, a, a true view of tolerance is not, how, not whether, you're in, whether you tolerate someone, but how you treat someone of a different view. You know, in other words, there, people are always going to disagree with us. We should be able to love the people that disagree with us, even though we don't, don't agree with their views. At least, especially as Christians, that's our call. Our call is that we're, we're to love everybody, uh, even if they disagree with us. So I want to talk to you today about some things Jesus said about about the truth and how the truth does offend and how, how can we then be effective? We're caught in the middle then because we want to be effective in the world. We don't want to be offensive, right? We don't want to be obnoxious with our faith. We've all met people who were obnoxious Christians uh, and we don't, want, we don't want to be obnoxious Christians, but we don't want to be absent Christians because Jesus has sent us into the culture as salt and light. Jesus has called us into our generations. We you know, have several generations represented here, right? So the Lord has called us into the generations that were involved in each of our generations. Uh, you know, boomers and what, you know, the, the greatest generation, then boomers, and then what's the next one? Uh, and then the millennials, I can't remember what the, the generation before the millennials were there. The what? Gen X. Yes. The Gen X all knew. See, they were like, we're Gen X. What do you mean? Don't call us millennials. Uh, and then, uh, Gen, I think it's Gen Z is the next one, right? Is that right? Gen Z, which sounds like a Chinese, uh, herb. herb yeah. So, Okay. So every generation, we, you know, has their challenges. So how do, we, how do we speak the truth into each generation and yet not offend? Although the truth is going to be offensive at times, right? So how do we do this? So I just want you to see this because sometimes our view of Jesus is that he never did anything offensive or said anything offensive. And that's not a true view. Because Jesus said, said some things and did some things that were taken by his culture as very offensive. First of all, John chapter 2, verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made up a whip of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. So I would imagine if you were one of those people involved in that, that was fairly offensive, right? 
that Jesus attacked them <laughs> with a whip made out of cords, uh, which is actually a fairly dangerous thing to do because there were temple, there was a temple guard that had authority to arrest people and detain them within those temple grounds, even though, and there was a, a Roman garrison attached to the temple mound. So there were, you know, but Jesus recognized that his authority superseded those. And it appears that Jesus did this twice. Because in John, this is in John chapter 2, and it's after the miracle of the wedding at Cana where he turned water into wine. And then at the end of his ministry, after he's entered Jerusalem on a donkey, in Matthew 21, it says Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. So it appears that Jesus like began his ministry and ended his ministry by making sure he offended a lot of people. When you do the right thing, there's usually somebody on the wrong side of it that would get offended. You know, telling the truth can sometimes get you in trouble. I've known people that have lost jobs because their boss wanted them to lie to a customer or lied to someone and they were unwilling to do so. So they lost their jobs because they told the truth instead of telling a lie. They, so they ended up by being the truth and not, 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 willing to, not willing to lie. They ended up on the wrong side of the situation. Jesus also said some offensive things. And uh, this is a really long passage and I struggled about whether or not I should read it. It's like 50 verses. But you know, We're supposed to read the Bible, you know? So, and so I, I want you to get the, the context of it. We've talked about these verses before, but the context is Jesus has fed the 5,000. And now he has gone to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And they got in boats and went around, and they followed him. And so... This is the interaction that they have when they see Jesus the next day. And basically, they're following Jesus because they're hungry again. You know? The free Big Macs went over really well, and now they're wanting another batch. And so they followed him. So Jesus answered, very truly I said to you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and fishes you ate the loaves not and fishes, and had your fill. I was adding a little bit to the word. Do not work for food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. He says, don't work for this perish. Don't put too much effort into this perishing food. You should really be working for eternal life. When they ask him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this. To believe in the one who he has sent. So if you want to do the work of God, you need to believe on Jesus. So they ask him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So what are they saying? They're saying, what sign will you give? It's like, 
how about some more bread, right? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. They're still thinking it's bread. They're not getting the picture that he says, I am the bread of life. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. And all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of these whom he has given to me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. And at this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. It's hard to have a conversation when someone knows your thoughts, right? <laughs> Jesus answered, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. It's written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. In other words, what he's saying is that God prepares your heart. He draws you to himself. You don't save yourself. You know, we, we, we often uh, use the terminology, you know, I got, you know, I got saved, or uh, there was a big campaign uh, you know, a long, long time ago that the old people remember, uh, of when people would come to Christ, everybody had these bumper stickers, I found it. I found it, it's, which was, and it was about salvation. And if you're over 50, you might remember that, okay? Uh, I found it. But you don't find God. <laughs> he finds you. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I say to you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the man in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? You know, they all kind of had a collective yuck, Right? Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. So, so now they're, they're still thinking physically. And Jesus has, is, is saying, he's not talking about physical bread, is he? He's talking about his body is life, that he is life. If you take of the bread of Christ, you have eternal life. And how do you take of the bread? What's the work that you do to take of the bread? He said, the work of God is to believe in me. 
the way you take of the bread of Jesus Christ, the way you take of the blood of Jesus Christ, is that you believe in Jesus. You believe that what he did, what he accomplished in his life, because he lived a life that we can't live, he lived a sinless life, and then he died our death on the cross, he shed his blood for us. So we believe that that was for us. In believing in that, we take of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Truly, truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of God and drink his blood, you'll have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever, he said, then while teaching in the synagogue of Capernaum. You see, there are things, real bread will only satisfy for a short time. What happens if you eat bread? Some of you, are, some of you had breakfast. You had three donuts already. Uh, I'm not going to call you out. Uh, some of you have already had breakfast, but what's going to happen in just a little while? You're already thinking, because now I said it, you're already thinking about it. Because one of the things we do is we think, we eat breakfast and we think, what are we going to do for lunch? <laughs> we, start, we start planning ahead, you know. I wonder where are we going to go eat today? So physical hunger always returns. It never satisfies. You're never satisfied. I mean, you know, Thanksgiving, you, go to, you eat your Thanksgiving meal and you just eat so much food and you're just miserable and you waddle from the table uh, to sit in front of the TV and watch football and you think, I will never eat again. I will never eat again. And in about an hour you're thinking, is there any more of that pie left? <laughs> right? That's what, that's what the physical hunger does. But Jesus said, I'm going to satisfy you with bread from heaven. I'm going to fulfill the longing, not of your appetites, but of your soul. I'm going, to meet, I'm going to give you real life. I'm going to give you, I'm going, to, I'm going to fill that empty void in you that's looking for something. And what that's looking for is me. It's life in God. And I'm going to give you not just this life, but eternal life. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Whether his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? I, wrote, I read all of that so I could read that right there. <laughs> does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life, yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of those who did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. It was just too hard. It was too difficult. Eat my flesh and drink my blood was too much. They couldn't take it out of the physical into the spiritual context. It was just like, you know, they were like, oh, gosh, I can't believe he said that. This, you know. And Jesus said, do you want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12, 
You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who was the one of the twelve, was later to betray him. So Jesus said some things that it offended a lot of his disciples when he said, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. It says, and a lot of them just quit following him any, anymore. The truth was too hard. They didn't get it. Part of it is they couldn't take it out of the physical context and the eternal context. They could only think of it as eating flesh. and How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They could only think of it within the physical context of what he was accomplishing. So they weren't able to see what God was actually trying to bring them to eternal life, not just physical life now. Then he said something that was very offensive. He said in John 14, 16, he said, I'm the only way to the Father. We've talked about this in the last couple of weeks about how this offends people. This is one of the most offensive things that Jesus said. That Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He didn't say, I'm one of many ways to, to God. That's our, our culture wants to say every, every belief system is, is just as valid as every other belief system. And Jesus says, no, it's not. It's not. Jesus said, you can believe everything you want to believe, but if you don't believe in me, you won't have eternal life. The only way to get to the Father is through me. He was saying, listen, you, you can believe whatever you want to believe about Zeus and Apollo and and." Every God, the Romans had hundreds of gods. This offended Yes. Do I need, I'll step, I think I, I stepped into the twilight zone. So uh, I'm sorry, I was distracted. Squirrel. Uh, you know, can you imagine saying to a crowd of people, I know you believe in God, but I want you to understand that your God can't hear you, your God can't help you, God, your prayers to your God won't save you, because your God is not God at all. That's what he said. When he said, I'm the way to the Father, no one comes to the Father but through me. Everyone in the crowd, except the Jews, there were certainly a lot of Jews in the crowd, and they understand, understood that their father, Jehovah, in what Jesus was saying, he is my father, they understood that, but every, everybody else was offended because Jesus was saying, your God is not God at all. He offended the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, Matthew 23, 13. This is what he said to the Pharisees, and he was probably harder on the Pharisees than he was any other group of people. He was hard on the Pharisees. He was, he was hard on the money changers. He was hard on the Pharisees because they did what they were doing is that instead of Judaism being a blessing to the world to bring salvation to the world, they had turned it into an exclusive club that you couldn't get into. Instead of bringing God to people, they were keeping God away from people. In other words, that no one could be good enough for God. Instead of bringing people to God for God to help, it was like, we're, we, we're on the inside, and we're God's chosen people, and we've got it, but you don't, and don't try to get it because you can't get it. So Jesus' response to the Pharisees was this, Woe to you, to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. 
You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. I don't know. If I was a Pharisee and I was in the crowd, I would have been kind of offended by that, right? You make, he said, basically, he said, you're going to hell, and you're taking people with you. And this worked because it offended them so much that they plotted to kill him. They were offended. Jesus said in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. John eleven forty seven. 47, then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many signs. So Jesus is doing miracles. He is demonstrating that he is the Messiah because he's raising people from the dead. The blind are seeing, the deaf are hearing, the lame are walking. Whereas they're seeing these incredible miracles, and their response to that is, this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. So, so they're saying, if, if we let Jesus be the Messiah, we're going to lose all of our political power. Then one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that you spoke of, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. And they began to plot to kill him. So what made Jesus so attractive to lost people if he was uncompromising in how he spoke the truth? He didn't, he didn't mince words in what he said. So I think one thing is that I think the lost people recognized, felt the same way about the Pharisees that he did. They recognized that, that they were keeping people away from God, not helping people get to God. Matthew 9, chapter 10, chapter Matthew 9, verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners... And the, sinners is a, is a term, is a, is a term in, in the New Testament. You think, well, what does that mean? This is a term in the New Testament that is used for non-practicing Jews. Whereas Jews who aren't trying to keep the law, Jews who aren't going to temple, they're not, not offering sacrifices, they're Jews, they're God's chosen people by birth, ethnically, they're Jews, but they're not trying to practice following God. They're not, they're not trying to follow and obey the commandments. They're just, so they're sinners. So many tax collectors and sinners, people are not practicing their faith or a faith, came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because this was, this was forbidden. You couldn't, you couldn't be in contact with sinners because the Pharisees, they believed that if you were in contact with a defiled person, it would defile you. They thought, they thought of sin as something, being something external, like washing a cup, like you wash the outside of a cup, but inside it's filthy. Jesus said, you, he said to the Pharisees, he says, you're like, you're like whitewashed tombs. You, you look good on the outside, but the inside's full of death and deadness and bones. He said, you, you look good, but you're not good. And they recognize this. 
So when the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does the teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. So what made Jesus attractive to lost people is that they recognized that he was extending to them something that the Pharisees and the religious community was not extending to them. He was extending to them the mercy of God. He was saying, come to me and you won't get what you deserve. Now, you know why you need mercy if you're guilty? right? If you've done something wrong and you want to get out of it, you need mercy. If you've committed a crime, you, you owe a debt to society. But we've sinned against God, so we owe a debt to God. We've sinned, our sin is against God primarily, so we owe a debt to God. So God offers us Mercy. So Jesus came to show that God is saying, I want to extend mercy. I want to, I want to extend to you mercy. I don't want to keep you out of heaven. I want to invite you into heaven. See, mercy is not getting what you deserve. Jesus came not to give us what we deserve. He came to give us what we don't deserve. So our job as God's people and representatives of Jesus Christ is to help people not get what they deserve and get what they don't deserve. That's mercy and grace. In other words, grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. So Jesus came to give us mercy and grace. He came to not give us what we deserve. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. He came to give us not what we deserve, but to give us mercy, to invite us into the presence of God. And we're not worthy to be in the presence of God, so he gives us grace He graces us with his righteousness so that we are able to be in the presence of God. So he gives us both mercy and grace. He gives us what we don't deserve, and he doesn't give us what we do deserve at the same time. So one of the things that was happening, what made Jesus so attractive is that they didn't feel judgment. They felt they felt God's mercy being extended to them. They could, words, Jesus said, that's why I, I, desire, I, I desire compassion. I desire mercy. And I think it's interesting when you read about Jesus that, and you read all the things that he said in a very corrupt government structure with corrupt taxation policies, a lot of people, a lot of people in the Jewish nation by this time with Rome occupation and their heavy taxation, they had lost all family property to the state. Okay? So the, the government had taken over all their land by now. They were just, you know, subsisting on the land. Uh, he, he never, but with all of this, with bad taxation policies, Jesus never talked about politics. He never badmouthed Augustus Caesar. As a matter of fact, when he talked about taxes, he said, render to God what is God, render to Caesar what's Caesar's. He never talked about the Roman Senate. In a very sin-ridden culture bound by greed, 
immorality of all kinds. There was, you know, outside of the Jewish world that had the commandments and had a sense of morality that they had learned how to, how to you know, find a way around it. But the, the German world had very little, what we would consider view of sexual morality. They didn't have one. They didn't have a, it was anything goes. And so with all of that, in a sin-ridden culture, immorality of all kinds, slavery, idolatry, the, the closest he ever got to commenting on a particular sin was when the woman was caught in adultery. And here's what he said, go and sin no more. He also said at the same time, neither do I condemn you. I don't hold you in your sin. I'm offering you mercy and grace. I'm offering to give you what you don't deserve and to not give you what you deserve at the same time. So he never talked about individual sins. What did he say? He said, what do you need to do? You need to believe on me. You need to receive life from me. He only criticized the Jewish religious system because it had degraded into keeping people away from God instead of being the blessing that God promised Abraham he wanted it to be. Now, all this stuff does get talked about in the New Testament because the New Testament is written to believers. So there's a lot of stuff about sexual immorality and being honest and how you treat people and about how you deal with all kinds of relationships in marriage and everything else. Because here's the problem. It's like going into your, child, into your baby's room, okay? And they're laying there in the crib, and they look so cute. And they're crying, and they're hungry. You can tell they're hungry. And so you go in there and throw a steak in the crib. Say, live it up. Does that help them? They don't have the capacity or the ability to eat that steak. Anything beyond come to Jesus because Jesus gives you life, anything beyond that to the world is a steak that they can't chew because they don't have the capacity to understand it or digest it. So often one of the mistakes that we make when we're communicating with people who don't know Jesus yet is that we want to talk to them about behavior instead of talking to them about the source of life in Jesus Christ. Now once you come to Christ, now that you have the power of God living in you, and I don't keep the commandments because I have to do it to honor God, I do it because I desire. I do it not out of, oh, I've got to do this. I have to do this so God will love me. I do it not so that God will love me, but because he does love me. John chapter 14, 10. Don't you believe that I'm the Father and the Father's in me? That I'm in the Father, Father in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak of my own authority. Rather, it's the Father living in me who is doing his work. Jesus only spoke what God told him to say. Now, here's what I would say. I think we'd be a lot more effective in the world if we said less. <laughs> a lot of times we'd just be a lot more effective if we'd do more and say less. Here's what Paul says to the Colossians. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders 
Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So what made Jesus appealing? Well, he, gave them, he offered them grace and mercy. Number two, they recognized that Jesus was speaking the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Simon Peter said to him when Jesus said, are you going to leave too? He said, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus had said earlier, I am the bread of life. When Jesus spoke to those who could receive it, who, those who the Father was calling, it was, like, it was like fresh bread coming out of a hot oven. Is that delightful? To, to those who were hungry for spiritual reality, when Jesus spoke, it was like, wow, give me some of that. That's life. I used to live, when I lived in Abilene when I was growing up, you know, back in the dark ages, uh, I lived in Abilene, and we lived pretty close to the Mrs. Baird's Bakery. Have you ever lived close to a bakery? Remember the bakery that, was on, that used to be on, uh, on 75? And just drive by there. Just a, it was just a delight just to drive by there. You, wanna, you just wanted to have a pat of butter with you just in case. You, know, they, you think, maybe they'll throw a roll in the window as I go by. I don't know. It was just that smell of fresh, fresh bread. It's so delightful. And when Jesus spoke, it was like that. But spiritually, it was like that. It was people, for the people that were spiritually hungry, that were looking for life, he was the bread of life. He is the bread of life. He's the only thing that will satisfy. Money won't satisfy. Fame won't satisfy. You look, you look around. You can see. Famous people, wealthy people, are still looking for something to satisfy. Jesus satisfies the longings of our soul. They also recognized that Jesus was the real deal. John 6, 69, Peter said, We have come to believe and know that you're the Holy One of God. They've been living with Jesus for 24-7. If there were any sins in his life, unknown things, they would have seen it, but they didn't see it because he was living a sinless life. Now, that's hard for us because we're not Jesus. So we have a little harder time witnessing to the world than Jesus did because we're not Jesus. We're imperfect and what the world will say is that we appear to the world to be hypocrites. You ever hear that? And, and I, you know, you think about that. We appear to the world to be hypocrites. A hypocrite it claims to be something they are not. They're a fake. So the world will say something like this. You call yourself a Christian, but you will always do perfectly what Jesus did or would do. Anybody here do always perfectly what Jesus did or would do? But here's the reality. We don't actually claim to be perfect. But we claim to have been made righteous by the perfect, complete work of Christ. As Christians, we don't claim to be something we're not. In fact, we need to act like something that we are. <laughs> so a hypocrite is not what they claim to be. We are what we claim to be. We just need to live up to who we are. We are the sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We are now the sons of God. We don't always act like the sons of God, but we are the sons of God. We're not hypocrites 
we are imperfect representations because we actually are who Jesus says we are. We are the righteousness of God in Christ through the complete work of Christ on the cross. We don't always seem to be the righteousness of God in Christ, do we? But we are. We are the righteousness of God in Christ because the only person who can truly judge that, the God of the universe, declares that we have been made righteous by the complete work of Christ on the cross. So although we don't always live it, we are it. We are of God's household. We're of God's family. It's like this. We're like king's kids that are living in a car because we don't understand who our father is and we don't understand the price that was paid for our adoption. We don't understand that we're in a new family and that now we're free in Christ. We fail to grasp the price that has been paid and we fail to understand the position in Christ that has been received. So, so how, do, how do we do this? This is, this is because this is, where, this is where we mess up, and I'm, I'm over time. So, I'm, this is where we struggle. How do we convey the reality of Christ when we are imperfect representations of it? Right? How do we convey the life of Christ when we sometimes act like Christ is in our life? How do we convey the righteousness of Christ when Christ is in our righteousness? And Paul, Paul says this very well because Paul struggled with this himself. He says in Philippians chapter 3, not that I have already obtained this, I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. So he's saying, I, I'm, I'm trying to get where I want to I live where I am. I want to live who I am. It was taken hold of for me through Christ, and now I want to live what Christ has gotten a hold of for me. I'm I'm not trying to wrestle my way to it. I just want to live who I am. Brothers and sisters, I don't yet consider myself as yet having taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view. So basically what he has said is we're not perfect. I'm not perfect. And then in verse 15 he says, all of us who are mature, that's the word for perfect, all of us who are perfect should take a view of such a view of these things. He said, I'm perfect, but I'm not perfect. I'm righteous, but I'm not righteous. Right? You feel that tension? And in some point, if you think differently, that God too will make clear. We're all imperfect representations of a perfect salvation that's been given to us. So, how do we approach the world? I know this is is too simple. This is the truth. We approach the world with confidence in the gospel. Confidence in the gospel and the salvation that comes in Jesus Christ. And humility and humility about who we are and how we live it. See, what often turns the world off is not the message of Christ, but the arrogance of those who are following as if we've done this ourselves. But we're here because we were extended mercy and grace. 
we didn't get what we deserved. And we get what we don't deserve. So if we, as we go out into the world, if we'll be people in perfect representations, we have this treasure in jars of clay. As we represent God's people, if we'll do it with humility, then we have ability to draw people to Christ. Amen. Okay, I'm done. Sorry. Oh, you nine minutes. I'll give it to you. When, when we get to heaven, I'll say, here's your nine minutes back. <laughs> get an extra nine minutes. You'll get an extra nine minutes in eternity because of this. So, or you'll go to heaven nine minutes earlier. Uh, <laughs> Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, we know, we know the challenge. And the world sometimes, we don't do a good job of representing you to the world. Instead of showing the world the life in Christ, the joy in Christ, the fellowship of Christ, they, they see something different. They see legalism. They see judgment. They see harshness. They don't see mercy and compassion. They, they don't see forgiveness. They don't see grace that has been offered from us, not because we deserve it, because you paid the price for it so that it could be offered to us freely. So, Father, help us in the midst of this world to convey with humility your mercy and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you.